stand and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is God's word. notice as well. So thank you uh, for doing that. Friends, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, My name is Charlie Dunn, and uh, if you don't know, uh, this is a pretty significant month in the life of our church. Uh, So in two weeks from today, we're going to celebrate two years uh, since we began worshiping together, and I hope that you'll stick around and celebrate with us on Sunday the 22nd. And then Uh, By the end of this month, uh, we are hoping uh, to close on the purchase of this uh, church property. And that's a really, yeah, let's let's clap for that. Let's praise God for that. That's a really significant step uh, for a new neighborhood church to be able to take. Um, For us to be able to to own a, a church property is a way for us to communicate to our neighbors Uh, that we're really here to stay, that we are committed for the long term, uh, to work for the good of our neighbors, to share with them uh, the hope that we have found in Jesus. And in addition to that, when you own a church property, it also allows you to make uh, changes to it. And some of you know we do have some extensive plans over the course of next year to make some renovations that we think will transform this, this property in some beautiful and strategic ways. And that's exciting, right? We give thanks to God for that, for his provision to us. Um, We're so thankful for your sacrificial generosity um, that has made that possible. And we're really looking forward to those changes over the course of this next year. Uh, But uh, because whenever you engage in those sorts of of physical renovations, right, whenever you're, you're able to kind of witness those visible changes, Um, They they tend to get our focus. They tend to get our attention precisely because uh, they are physical, visible changes. And so I think in the midst of that, as we prepare for a year that in many ways will be marked by that, we want to keep this perspective. We want to keep that in perspective. um, That, while the church property is a very helpful tool for our church, The building is not the church. Amen? Amen. There's a very significant difference. And and so even as we um, are embarking upon this renovation and and transformation, we want to remind ourselves that the transformation that we are most interested in is the transforming power of Jesus at work in our lives, the transformation that we want to share with our neighbors that we long to see more of in this community. You know, when we started dreaming about this church now three years ago, when we sat down with the initial core team and we dreamed about what we hoped that God might do in our midst here in Lake Highlands, our dream was not to have a beautiful church building in Lake Highlands, right? Our dream, our dream was to see more of our neighbors come to find and follow Jesus and to experience his transforming power at work in their lives. And so what I think is important for us to do over the next uh, four weeks together is just to really remind ourselves as we begin this year of of the answer to the question, why are we here? Why are we here? Why do we believe 
uh, that God has called us to establish this neighborhood church, this particular church in this particular neighborhood? What is the vision uh, that God has given to us? And I'm sure that most of you have our vision statement memorized. You could recite it in your sleep, but just in case you don't, here it is up on the screen for you. This is the vision that, that we believe God has given to us for this particular church. As a family being transformed by grace, that's who we are and what we hope God is doing in our midst. And then what we want to do outside of ourselves, we exist to help our neighbors find and follow Jesus and to work for the flourishing of Lake Highlands. And as you can imagine, when we put this vision statement together, we prayed over this, we reflected and talked about each word that is included within that statement. But what I want to do for the next four weeks together is I want to just press in on four of these words or phrases that you see highlighted there in green and talk about what do those really mean and what would it look like for us to, to lean into those aspects of our vision more in this year. And I want to start with that phrase of what it means to be a people who are being increasingly transformed by grace. You know, when you hear that word transformed, that's a word that gets to the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, it raises questions like, who am I? Who am I becoming? What difference do I really expect that Jesus will make in my life? And, you know, to be a disciple, to be a, a follower of Jesus, um, it doesn't mean that you're somebody who just lives a little more like Jesus than somebody who's not a disciple. That over time, you become a little more moral, a little more polite, a little bit more nice. Our goal is not to have a congregation filled with nice people. Now, we don't want a congregation of mean people, and, you know, in my experience, I think most of you are pretty nice people, but can we just acknowledge the fact that the Son of God did not leave his throne in heaven and come and take on our flesh and all the vulnerability of a baby as we celebrated at Christmas. He didn't live a perfectly obedient life in our place and then experience the most humiliating and painful kind of death on a cross for our sins to rise bodily from the dead just to make us a little nicer. Right? He's interested in our transformation. He's interested in making us new people. He's interested in nothing short of a wholesale life renovation. I love how C.S. Lewis puts this uh, in his book, Mere Christianity. Listen to this image. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. When you become a follower of Jesus, God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. Does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing up a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace 
He intends to come and live in it himself. You know, I was reminded of that quotation this week, actually in a conversation with a a college student who recently became a Christian. And he was reading Mere Christianity, just finished it. And so I asked him, I said, what were some of your takeaways from that book? And and he, he pointed to this quotation. He said, that really connected with him. I asked him why. I said, why did that resonate with you? He said, because, you know, when I became a Christian now about a year ago, he said, I, I had an interest in God. I had an interest in Jesus because I was going through a really hard time. Um, I was lonely. I was struggling in, in friendships with, with people. And, and I just needed some comfort. I just needed some peace. I needed a sense of God's presence. And I thought maybe Jesus could provide that for me. He said, but I had no idea that a year later I would be sober from drugs, that I would be sober from pornography. I had no idea a year later that I would have a regular practice of of reading the Bible, of journaling my prayers to God, that I would be increasingly amidst hard times trusting that God was somehow using them to work out his good purpose, that I would be reading Christian books, that Jesus would be coming the center of my life. I had no idea how much change and transformation Jesus was was intending to bring into my life. And, And friends, what we recognize is that's what Jesus is after in all of our lives. He's not just coming in to change a few paint colors, maybe to tear down a few bad-looking curtains. He wants to go for the foundation. He wants to go for the HVAC, to go for the plumbing, all of the, the systems. He wants to get down to the very core of our heart and change the reason why we do anything that we do. For us to become a people who genuinely love God, who genuinely love other people. And for whom everything else that we do in our lives begins to flow out of that transformed inner life. Our behaviors, our thinking, our feelings, our relationships, our marriages, the way we approach our work, every area of life. Jesus is interested in nothing short of a whole life kind of transformation. That's what it means to be his disciple. And we believe, how does that transformation happen? Well, it's tempting at the start of a new year when everybody's making their resolutions, it's tempting to believe that it happens through our willpower, that it happens through our resolve, that it happens through us just buckling down and saying, I'm gonna try harder to be the person that I want to be. But what we believe is that the power for where that transformation takes place is God's grace, transformed by grace. We'll unpack that more this morning. It's in our church name. I talked to the guy who's going to do the wood floors on this stage on Friday. He said, why did y'all choose the name Grace? It was a great opportunity to explain a bit of the gospel to him. But we believe that God's grace, that's the power for that transformation. You want a definition of grace, you could say it's God's undeserved favor. Or one clever person said grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. The riches of God that flow into our life freely, but which come at Christ's expense. And when I was thinking about where do we get a good picture of somebody who was experiencing this transformation by grace, somebody whose life was transformed by grace, it it led me to the passage that Brandy read for us a moment ago. The life of this disciple named John the Baptist. 
In many ways, John the Baptist was the first disciple of Jesus. And if you want your life to be transformed from the inside out, if this is a year where you want to get increasingly outside of yourself and to experience more of God's love and grace for you in a way that starts to flow into every other area of your life, I think that we need to learn to be more like John the Baptist. Now, when I say to be more like John the Baptist, I don't mean in every way. John the Baptist was a bit of a unique sort of individual, was he not? He had a unique calling. He was called to prepare the way for the Messiah, the, the forerunner for the Christ. John the Baptist had a unique wardrobe. He wore camel's hair and a leather belt. I don't think I could pull that off. Maybe some of you could, but I don't think that's our calling. He had a unique diet. He ate locusts and wild honey. You think your New Year's diet is hard. Try living off of locusts and wild honey. There's a lot of things that are pretty unique about John the Baptist. But when I say that we want to be more like John the Baptist, I mean we want to take up John the Baptist's approach. His approach in two ways. In the way that he saw himself and in the way that he saw Jesus. The way he looked at himself and the way that he looked at Jesus. And in many ways, these two things are inseparable. You want to keep them bound up together. But what we have in John's gospel in the first chapter is actually what John does is he gives us two days in the life of John the Baptist. Did you notice that? Right in the middle of the passage, he says, the next day, meaning he's talking about two days in the life of John the Baptist. And on day one, he shows us how John viewed himself. And then on day two, he shows us how John viewed Jesus. And so we're going to look at these two days together, which hopefully will become increasingly our approach to how we see ourselves in Jesus as well. So day one, how did John look at himself? We've got some religious leaders, we're told. Verse 19, they come to John the Baptist because they've got questions. The leaders in Jerusalem, they've heard this guy has a lot of people coming to him to be baptized. He's attracting a lot of attention. They want to know who he is. So they come to him and they ask him a very simple question. They say, who are you? Then in verse 22, they say, who are you? What do you say about yourself? It's a really simple question, but it's a really profound question, is it? It's actually not the easiest question sometimes to answer. Who are you? You ever gotten the advice before? Has anybody ever said to you, just be yourself? Just try to be yourself and everything will be okay. Easier said than done though, right? Because that means you have to know who you really are. And I think sometimes the longer that we live, it, it, it gets difficult. Sometimes to know, who am I really? How do I distinguish between the various responsibilities, the various roles that I play versus who I really am? Where does the real me begin versus the, the roles? Where does that begin? Where does that end? Who am I? And one of the great marks of wisdom is somebody who really knows who they are. John the Baptist knew who he was. He knew who he was. In many ways, more poignantly to this passage, John the Baptist knew who he wasn't. He knew who he wasn't. Look at verse 20. It says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, 
I am not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. Now, maybe that seems pretty obvious, right? Pretty obvious that we would know that to be true of ourselves. If you met somebody out in the welcome area this morning, they said, hey, nice to meet you. Tell me a little bit about yourself. And you said to them, well, I'm not the savior of the world. Right? I think they'd be like, well, no, duh, that's pretty obvious, right? We know that we're not the Christ. Obviously, none of us are the Christ. That seems obvious, but I actually don't think it is. But the more I've been reflecting on this passage this week, the more it struck me how much, so much of the worry, the frustration, the anger, the defensiveness, the self-righteousness that we see from time and time again in our lives comes from the fact that we're actually not very clear on who we're not, that we're not the Christ. Maybe you've got a friend, maybe you've got somebody in your life that you care about right now, they're going through a struggle, they're going through a problem, you really want to help them. You, you want to give them advice. Sometimes it's solicited, maybe it's not, but you want to help them. You think if they would just do the things that you want them for, for them to do, then things would be better off in their life. But the question is, have you learned in the midst of that relationship to be able to say, you know what, I can't really change you. I can't force you to do the things that I want for you to do that I think are for your good. I'm not the Christ. Or if you're a parent and you have children, and you want good things for your children. You want for, for things to, to be um, in, a, in a way that it's going to make sure that they're safe. You want them to be safe. You want them to be successful. You want them to choose what's good and right. You want them to love God the way that you do. And yet, as much as you want that and as much as you try to maybe kind of set that up for their lives, have you learned to be able to say, I'm not the Christ. I can't save them. Maybe in your own life, as you're embarking on a new year, and there are things in your character that you want to see change. There are problems in your life that you want to address. There are bad habits you want to break, maybe addictions that you want freedom from. There are new habits that you want to form, and yet in the midst of that, that desire, that good desire for change, have you learned, though, to be able to say, I'm not the Christ. I can't save myself. I can't bring the change that I long to see. Maybe in your work, everybody here, maybe you, you have a job, whatever that job is that God has called you to do. Work is a gift from God, and we want to do it as though unto the glory of God. But, but amidst so much of the, the stress that you feel in your work, or maybe as you're tempted to, to overwork, to the neglect of your family, or the neglect of other responsibilities in your life, have you learned to be able to say, you know, the work that truly matters, most importantly, is actually the work that Jesus has already accomplished for me. And I'm not the Christ. That might sound easy to say, but I actually think it's difficult. I think it's hard to admit that we're not the Christ because it wounds our pride, because it removes that illusion of control with which we want to live. But I think that's where transformation by grace begins begins by saying, I'm not the Christ. Jesus, I have problems in my life that I'm not able to fix. I have longings and desires for joy and love and purpose that I can't fulfill in all the other places that I want to fulfill them. I can't save myself. I can't save other people. I'm not the Christ. 
And, you know, John the Baptist understood that. He really got that. I mean, that's what his whole baptism thing was all about. John's baptism was a little different than what we call Christian baptism today. His baptism was a baptism of repentance. He was constantly telling people, doesn't matter if you're Jewish, doesn't matter if you're religious, everybody needs to be baptized because everybody needs to be cleansed of their sin. Everybody needs to be forgiven. None of us can save ourselves. That's what his baptism was all about, acknowledging that we're not the Christ. The way John looked at himself, he knew he wasn't the Christ. More than that, he knew that he was not worthy of the Christ. Look, look at verse 27. John says this. He says, he who comes after me, the strap of his sandal, I am not worthy to untie. And you know, in, in those days, to untie somebody's sandal, commentators say that was like the lowest work. That was the work thought fitting only for the lowest of slaves to have to touch someone's dirty feet, to untie their sandals. But in the way that John thinks about himself, he says, I'm unworthy to even untie the sandals of the Christ, of God's Messiah. And what's striking to me about that is that this guy, John, he had his own resume. He had his own credentials. This guy was kind of a big deal. I mean, you think about his miraculous birth that we talked about a couple Sundays ago. You think about the way that people were so drawn to him. I mean, John was kind of like a rock star in that first century world. How do you know you're a rock star? Because you have groupies. And John had groupies, right? He had all these disciples, these people flocking to him to hear his messages. And then what did Jesus say about John? Anybody remember that? Jesus says that among those born of women, no one has risen greater than John the Baptist. How's that for an endorsement? Jesus says, greatest human being who's ever lived till this point, John the Baptist. You would want that on the back of your book, I think, if you wrote one. John had great credentials. He had a lot of reason to think of himself as somebody really significant, really important, somebody that God would be so lucky to have on his team, somebody the Messiah surely would be honored to get to have be a part of his movement. And he said, I'm unworthy even to untie his sandals. I was thinking about how, did that, how does that apply in my life right now? And, and I, was, I was reminded of the fact that, that every year at the end of January, our denomination has this like national gathering where all the pastors and churches get together, 400 churches. And, 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 and whenever I go to that gathering, and I'll go again this year, that year after year, I have found that there is this, this, this joy-stealing temptation that starts to rise up in my heart. And it's this temptation when I'm, when I'm around all these other pastors that, that I want to be perceived as successful. I, I want them to think well of me. I want them to think highly of me. And, and you do it in kind of like subtle ways. You kind of like drop in these, these positive things about what's going on in the life of your church because I want to be seen as a success. I don't, I don't want this posture of, of I'm unworthy even to untie his sandals. And yet... Friends, what, what, what grace means, what grace means for us is, is to be able to recognize that, that God doesn't owe us anything. 
that the good things in our lives, they're not a credit to us, they're a credit to him. The only way to experience transformation by grace is to say, God, I'm not entitled. You don't owe me anything. In fact, if you were to give me what I deserve, actually it would be your displeasure. It would be your judgment. It would be to be cut off forever from you. And you see, what we have, if we, if we want to be transformed by grace, what we have in John is the way that we need to see ourselves that we're not the Christ, and that we're unworthy of the Christ. But then secondly, secondly, there's a day two. And really these go together, but they're distinguished for us, for uh, our learning in the life of John. Day two is the way that John sees Jesus. How does he look at Jesus? How does he see this person, Jesus? Well, um, two ways I'll draw our attention to. Here's the first. We're told on, on the next day when John saw Jesus, this is verse 29, it says he saw Jesus coming toward him, and what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, what's striking to me about this is that John already knew Jesus, they actually were related. They were, they were cousins. John probably had spent time with Jesus. He, had, he, he maybe had um, prior experiences with Jesus. He knows who Jesus is. And John's somebody who deeply knows uh, the Old Testament scriptures as well. But for some reason on this day, John says something that nobody had said before. He makes a connection that nobody seems to have ever made before. In the way that he looks at Jesus. Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, all, all throughout the Old Testament, there are a lot of lambs, aren't there? If any of you read through the Bible last year, you would have seen um, some of these, these lambs, right? When, when Isaac is going to be, Abraham's going to sacrifice his son Isaac, Isaac says, God, he, he says, Father, all of the things are here for the sacrifice except what? The lamb. Do you need a lamb for a sacrifice all through the sacrificial system? There are lots of lambs in the Passover story. There's the blood of the lamb that they put over their doors so that God's judgment passes them over. Lambs are always a substitutionary sacrifice. Lambs are, are killed bearing the judgment that, that our sin deserves so that we can be forgiven. And yet in this particular moment, on this particular day, I don't know if God, God directly revealed this to John so he could see this, but on this day he looks at Jesus and he says, wait a minute, all of those lambs in the history of our people, they've all been pointing forward to him. Right? They've all been preparation for him. We're not saved through the death of a little woolly lamb. We're saved through the death of this man. That's how we're going to be forgiven. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then a second thing that John sees about Jesus. It's not just that he's the Lamb of God who takes away our sin, but he says this of Jesus. He says he's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He says, I baptize with water, but this guy, he can baptize with the Holy Spirit. He can bring the very life of God into our lives. That is, the, the power by which we are transformed is not just by remembering and knowing what Jesus did on the cross for us to die for our sins, but there's this power in the fact that Jesus brings the very life of God, the Holy Spirit, 
into our lives. And, and don't overlook that. Don't miss that because some of us have walked with Jesus for a long time. Some of us have been followers of Jesus for a number of years, and so another year begins, another calendar page turns, and it's easy to be cynical. It's easy to start to think to yourself, everybody's making these resolutions, but I don't think I can really change, right? I just, I know myself well enough. I know I can be stingy. I know I can be judgmental. I know I can be self-righteous. I know that I can be somebody who lacks compassion for others, but I don't think I can really change. And, and the answer is, is that you can't, right? Not in your own power, not in your own strength, but, but don't you think that the God who spoke this universe into existence, don't you think he has the power to bring change in your life? If the very spirit of God comes to dwell within you? John says he's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I was thinking about these, these two things that John sees about Jesus. They actually go together. Right, that he's the Lamb of God who takes away our sin and that he is the one who brings the Spirit of God into our lives. They go together. <coughs> I had a little cold, sorry. Uh, John, John 16, Jesus says that the, the Holy Spirit, what does he do? What's his ministry? Well, he glorifies Jesus. How does he glorify Jesus? He takes the things that are Jesus's, he takes the things of Christ and he shows them to us. He takes what's true of Jesus and who he is for us and he brings it before our minds and our hearts in such a way that we see it and we, we wonder and we worship and we are changed as we behold the glory of Jesus. And so these two things, they, they actually they fit together. The way that the Holy Spirit's power is unleashed more in our lives is what? It's as we see Jesus as we behold Jesus, as, as we do what John commands us to do, behold the Lamb of God. What it means to behold Jesus is not just to believe in what he's done for us. It means to set who he is before our minds and our hearts until it fills us with wonder, until it begins to change us. My question for you is, is how are you doing that in your life right now? outside of worship on a Sunday morning? Are there ways that you seek to behold who Jesus is for you? As you read God's word, as you pray, maybe even as you sing worship music at the start of the day, uh, the song we're gonna sing in communion this morning, that's a song I've been, I've been singing each morning at the start of the day, uh, just because I love the lyrics. It's, it's a song called Behold Him, setting before my mind, who is this Jesus and who is he for me? And it's as we behold him uh, that we are increasingly um, changed. And these two things, they, they go together, even though they're distinguished in the life of John, but they're both so important if we want to be transformed by grace. How do we see ourselves? I'm not the Christ. I'm not worthy of the Christ. And then how do we see Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God, the one who brings the very life of God into my life, who laid down his life for my sin. So let's pray and let's seek to do this together as we come to the Lord's table. <coughs> Lord Jesus, as we come to this table this morning, uh, we come with the joy of empty hands. 
We come confessing and admitting that we are not the Christ. We're not able to save ourselves. Jesus, we come recognizing that we are unworthy of the Christ, that you do not owe us your love or your forgiveness. And yet we thank you that you have come to be the Lamb of God who would shed your very blood for us. We want to behold you at this table this morning. More than that, we want to commune with you. We thank you that by the power of your spirit, we are united to you today. Jesus, we are united to you, the risen Christ. And we long as we come to this table to be transformed by your grace for your very life to flow through us in new ways. We come to behold you at this table this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray.